0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Fleto. Just over 40 years ago, medical professionals came up with a way to define what it means for a person to die. What defines human death? Advances in medicine have made it possible to keep people alive in ways that, well, they were never possible in the past. So hospitals and doctors around the country adopted a set of standards which constitute what's called brain death. And those same standards were codified into laws in nearly every state. But there's no such medical consensus for another big question. When does human life begin? And with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, the answer to that question has big implications. As part of our continuing coverage of the science behind reproductive health, meet Sarah Varney, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, who also focuses on reproductive health. She's based in Monterey, Massachusetts. Sarah, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks, Sarah. Nice to have you. Okay, let's start off. Can you take me through... Perhaps a brief history of how our definition of death has shifted as medicine has advanced.
1: So really until the 1950s, physicians in the United States and really around the world would do what you might think. They would feel for a pulse or listen for breathing. They might even hold a mirror up to a patient's nose to look for condensation. Then by the 1950s or so, scientists had developed these mechanical ventilators, and they could really keep people, even with catastrophic brain injuries, alive almost indefinitely So there was this big question about whether patients would even want to stay alive under these conditions. And even in the most existential sense, this sort of raised this question of what it meant to be a human being. And then in 1967, there was this South African surgeon who performed the first heart transplant. And that ushered in a whole new era of organ transplantation. And these questions about whether some of these patients were truly dead enough to donate their organs, it took on a greater urgency. And then in the late 1960s, you know, there were a number of groups around the world that were starting to weigh these questions. That included also this ad hoc committee at Harvard Medical School. And it was a committee that was made up of doctors, a bioethicist, a lawyer, a theologian. And the central question that they were trying to answer was, if someone is seemingly irreversibly unconscious, are they dead? So in 1968, this committee developed what became known as the criteria for determining what was essentially a new way to die. And it was called an irreversible coma, what you refer to as brain death. And these are patients who were unresponsive. They showed no movement or reflexes. And there was a test that registered their electrical activity in the brain called an electroencephalogram. And that test would show that their electrical activity in their brain was essentially flat.
0: Mm -hmm. So was this codified then as to what death was, this brain death?
1: So by 1981, there was this presidential commission established. What they wanted was a uniform definition of brain death across all the states. And they decided that the entire brain, so that included the brain stem, basically irreversibly ceased to work. So the person at that point could be declared brain dead.
0: And so the committee reached this conclusion after it had studied it intensely with medical professionals and experts, right?
1: That's right. I mean, they had neuroscientists, they had bioethicists, and they spent months and months and months and months debating this and essentially came to a medical definition of what it meant to be brain dead.
0: And even with the uniform definition of brain death, there have been cases, high profile legal fights over brain dead patients that challenged this notion of brain death. And it's all been based on religious or moral and ethical grounds. Talk about the case. This one case is the story of 13-year-old girl named Jahai McMath.
1: So she suffered an irreversible brain damage after a complex tonsil surgery, and she was declared deceased in California. Now, McMath's family, with the financial support from pro-life groups at the time, moved the girl's body to New Jersey Now, New Jersey is a state that it differs from these other states around the country and that it allows families to contest a declaration of brain death. So when McMath's body was moved to New Jersey, she became legally alive again. Really, She had no detectable brain activity for nearly five years. And during that time, here's what's so fascinating, Ira, is she actually went through puberty and started menstruating. And she did eventually die in 2018.
0: Wow. So, so how might this case help us better understand how hard it is to draw the line when someone has died?
1: So the case of McMath was really fascinating. And part of the reason she was able to go through menstruation is because of the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus, while it sits in the brain, it really wasn't something that was covered by this total brain death standard. So about half of all brain dead adult patients There's hypothalamus can actually be stimulated and you can get a response. And so now, actually, there is this committee that is meeting once again to refine this definition of brain death. And one of the things that they are considering is how do we treat the hypothalamus when we're declaring somebody brain dead?
0: Right. Well, wouldn't you agree that despite some of the nuances we just talked about, that there is widespread medical agreement on what constitutes death and You know, we are now having trouble with the beginning of human life so much more complicated. Why is that so much more complicated to reach consensus on?
1: There has not been the same effort to really define what constitutes the beginning of life. I mean, in some extent, this is because there's a real religious belief based on, on when life begins. And really, perhaps medicine and science is not necessarily the best place to turn to even ask that question. So I spoke with David Magnus. He's on this committee that is determining and refining the notion of brain death. He's a bioethicist and the director of the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics. And let's take a listen to what he said about how you define when life begins and even when life ends.
2: Biological occurrences are processes, not events. It means that deciding where you wanna draw lines is a decision to be made, not something to be discovered. And so we have to decide where lines make the most sense.
1: So what Magnus is essentially saying is that death and even conception are not moments in time. And it's a complicated process.
2: When people talk about beginning at the time of conception, do they mean when the sperm first comes in contact with the sona pellucida of of the egg cell? Is it when that actual nucleic material, that DNA, actually starts to play a role, which isn't until a few cell divisions in? Somewhere in that process, we call that conception.
1: You know, Magnus and some of the other bioethicists that I spoke to in reporting this story would say that biology really suggests that conception is... Is just too early in the process to even consider that someone, that a life is a person. Uh, Let's hear David Magnus again.
2: The fact that so many very early embryos are lost without women even knowing they're pregnant is informative and is relevant to figuring out where to draw the line.
1: And Magnus really says, you know, asking doctors what is life or what is death may actually just miss the point. You know, that medicine can't really answer that question, when does a person begin or end, because those are really metaphysical issues. And this gets really interesting. There are people who study medical ethics, including Ben Sarby. He's a doctoral candidate at Duke University's Department of Philosophy. And he, when I was speaking with him, he offered me this example called the paradox of the heap. And it's essentially a thought experiment where a person places grains of sand one after another. And the philosophical quandary is this. When does that collection of sand become more than more than itself, a pile? This is a direct parallel to the debate over abortion and also the right to die. So Sarbi would say that many things count as life. You know, a sperm counts as life. A person in a persistent vegetative state counts as life. But does that constitute a person that the government should be protecting?
0: Yeah, when Justice Alito wrote the majority decision overturning Roe in June, he did not incorporate the advice of medical professionals like like you're talking about. And unlike the original Roe decision, which weighed medical guidance, it's now up to the states to determine when human life begins. So what kinds of laws have states passed as a result?
1: There are a number of Republican-led states, including Missouri, Kentucky, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and others that have laws that have declared that life begins at fertilization. So this This moment of conception that that Magnus says is actually elusive. And those laws have really profound legal implications. So there can be wrongful death lawsuits on behalf of the estate of the embryo or fetus by a disgruntled ex-partner or family against physicians and women who even end a pregnancy or even miscarry. In Kentucky, for example, the law outlawing abortion uses medically inaccurate and really morally potent terms to define pregnancy as, quote, the human female reproductive condition of having a living unborn human being within her body throughout the entire embryonic and fetal stages of the unborn child. Now, in that sentence, there are many inaccurate terms, a living unborn human being, for instance. Now, several other states, including Georgia, they've adopted measures that equate life with the point at which an embryo's nascent cardiac activity, that's when these sort of beginning electrical impulses start flickering, which is around six weeks of gestation. And these laws really mischaracterize the flickering electrical impulses detectable at that stage as a heartbeat. Um, And recently, in fact, in Georgia, the Department of Revenue announced that, quote, any unborn child with a detectable human heartbeat, by which they mean around six weeks, can actually be claimed now as a dependent on your taxes.
0: You know, Sarah, we started off this conversation talking about the end of life, which feels like it comes with a different set of issues than the beginning of life. But there's some striking parallels in the debates around aid in dying legislation. Tell me more about that.
1: There is ample connective tissue between the legal arguments surrounding abortion and the right to die. So, for instance, the legal standard in Dobbs that there is no right to abortion in the federal constitution, which is what the Supreme Court just said, and that states can decide this issue on their own, was the same exact rationale that was used in 1997 when the Supreme Court said that terminally ill people did not have a constitutional right to doctor-assisted suicide. And there were other members of the court's conservative bloc that overturned Roe that have also been heavily involved in arguing against the right to die. That includes Justice Neil Gorsuch, who actually wrote a book in 2017 called The Future of Assisted Suicide and Euthanasia. And that was advertised as providing the most comprehensive argument against its legalization that was ever published. And supporters of the Dobbs' decision agree that it could provide a means for challenging states like Oregon, which was the first state to pass a right to die law in 1997. Jim Bopp, who's the chief lawyer for the National Right to Life Committee, who has been central in the efforts to overturn abortion, he also said that, you know, both abortion and medical aid in dying endanger society. Jim Bopp, interestingly enough, is also on that committee right now that is helping to refine the definition of death. I mean, he very much opposes this notion of brain death and allowing hospitals and families to essentially, like, quote, pull the plug on their family members.
0: Sarah, always interesting stuff. Thank you for taking time to be with us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ira.
0: Sarah Varney, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News based in Monterey, Massachusetts. And you can read Sarah's full story by heading over to our website, sciencefriday.com life and death.